We're continuing this morning our sermon series entitled In Need of a Prophet, where we are looking specifically right now at the life of Elijah during this time of great wickedness under the reign of King Ahab. Uh, last week, at the beginning of chapter 18, we saw that after over three years of living in hiding, Elijah was sent to go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. That was God's word to him. And we saw an intermediary part of that journey. We're going to pick up that story now in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, beginning at verse 17 and reading through verse 40. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, that starts in the bottom of page number 352. Again, from 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And then at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, and perhaps he is asleep. And must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all of the prophets, come near me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. 
Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God of Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When thinking about the idea of God, I'm sure that many of you like me have come across all different kinds of people with all kinds of different ideas about who God is and how we are to live in response to him. I'm sure that you've come across people that are quite confident of their knowledge of who God is, and yet what they proclaim about God is very different from the God that you know in the Bible. Or I'm sure that you've also met other people, uh, people that I've interacted with who describe themselves as agnostic universalists. That they think that although there may be a God out there, that we as human beings have no real capacity to understand or to be able to define who or what that God actually is. And so they just kind of generally assume that any attempt to understand this God is completely acceptable. And as long as we try to be a little bit moral or do something to pursue any type of a deity, then everything is good. And while that sounds like a humble compromise between all of the different major religions in this world, it is a viewpoint that cannot be maintained. Because if God exists, which obviously he does, then there are certain things that that God is and other things that that God is not. And so if one person says that God is X, and another person says that God is Y, well then either both of them can be wrong, or one of them is right and the other one is wrong, 
But if X and Y are in contradiction to each other, the one option that you cannot hold is that both are right. And yet there are many in the world that try to hold that option. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think or how you perceive God as long as you're striving toward something. We've been talking in this series about what happens when you lose connection to the word of God. And when you do, not only do you lose his guidance and his direction for how we are to live in this world, his, his moral rules for our lives, but you also lose connection to his revelation, his self-revealing, him letting us know who he is and what he is like. And in that, when searching for a God then, Humans often create a God that they like rather than the true God that has revealed himself as he is. And in that, everything is at stake. Because if you don't have a right understanding of who God is, well, then you will not be able to respond to him properly. And if you create an idol image of him, then you will, you will not be worshiping the true God as he is. And, and your very heart, your very soul is therefore at stake. And that's very much what's behind our text for this morning. The Israelites, who were supposed to be the covenant, unique people of God, had often struggled to stay faithful to God and they, sure, they, they sought to, to worship other gods like the Baals as well. And lately under Ahab and Jezebel, they've been devoting their hearts and their national identity in service to the god Baal and the goddess Asherah. And finally, before God, the real God, was going to bring rain on the land, he was going to prove that he was the only true God and that these other idols were false. But in that, don't miss what is at stake. As Elijah says in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. In essence, Elijah is willing to concede. If Baal is the true God, then he deserves our worship, our attention, and glory. But if he is just an empty, non-existent creation of our head, he deserves nothing. But if God is the true God, he should be worshipped and glorified. And if he is not, he deserves nothing. And then the playing out of our text then becomes one of the most dramatic, most incredible demonstrations of God's power and presence in all of Scripture. And a big part of why this is the most dramatic, most incredible scenes is because throughout it, the deck is intentionally stacked against the Lord in this action. But in seeing the disadvantages or the supposed disadvantages that God was given, and yet how he more than overcomes them, I was struck not only as many suggest that that obviously elevates the glory of the God who overcomes these extra obstacles, but I also was struck by the fact that in those supposed obstacles, it reveals some of the idols that we 
in our society today and even within the church are tempted to have as, as false images of who God is. And so this morning, knowing what happens in the story, we're going to look at a few of those supposed disadvantages and ways that they can reveal some of the idols we might be tempted to hold in today's world. So first, the first disadvantage in our text is that uh, Baal was given home court advantage. Uh, we're going to look at the, the map once again uh, up here. And I know it's very hard to see, but if you look in the upper uh, left-hand corner here, you see where Mount Carmel is. And while on this particular map you recognize that it's in the green part in the territory of Israel, the reality is it was right on the border, the boundary between these northern nations of Tyre and Sidon and the boundary of Israel at times very much contested. And so geographically speaking, we are in the territory of Baal especially as his worship and dedication had been bleeding into Israel more and more. Being on Mount Carmel, he is overlooking his own land, his own territory. This is where he is supposed to have control. Uh, what is more is this is his specialty. Again, we've highlighted the idea that Baal was the storm god, the bringer of rain and the bringer of lightning. And so this fire from heaven, this was supposed to be his area of expertise, his ability to control. And so he's got home court advantage in every single way over the Lord. It'd be like taking on Steph Curry in a three-point contest at his home court, the backboard that he was most familiar with. He has every advantage. And so... When Baal fails in his home territory at his own game, and the Lord shows up in a powerful way that he does, it's making quite the statement. There is nowhere where God is not in control, and there is no thing that his power is unable to do. And yet... As I suggested, I think that's a lesson that we need to continue to learn and to hear. As I've been talking about in this sermon series in general, in terms of the need and why we are looking at this, we look at a world that is in disarray, that is broken. And there are examples of the fallenness and, and the brokenness of our world all around us every single day. And in that... The temptation of even many Christians is to think that because of all of the brokenness of the world, that the devil is the one who is in control right now. That this is Satan's home court territory. That he has the power and dominion. He's winning all of the battles. He is the one that has control. And if we think that way, well, that affects the way that we often live. On a social level, it can lead us to think that since the world is already lost, well, then we just need to endure it until we die. And then we can go off to glory where the Lord truly reigns over all things and will finally rule. But in the meantime, the battle's already been lost. There will always be poverty, which there will. 
There will always be wars and battles and violence and those who, who deal with the effects of abuse or with moral decay in this world. And we just need to accept that as a reality because there's not much that we can actually do because the devil's in control. On a personal level, we think much the same thing. Well, since the world is evil, then it's okay if I'm a bit evil as well. God knows that on this earth I will have all kinds of temptation and, and give in to those temptations from time to time. And I'm just a sinner like the rest of us. There is no real victory. So while I await that day that God calls me home, I will continue to stumble. I will fail because the devil has authority. He has control. He is over all things. This is his home court. But that is a defeatist mentality. And it is an idolatrous view of God because that's not what Scripture teaches. Again, this Thursday was Ascension Day, and this Sunday, this morning, is Ascension Sunday, the day we celebrate the, resurre uh, the, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. And when Jesus ascended, he gave these words from Matthew 28, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the ascension of Jesus, we celebrate the reign of Jesus. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is not the devil's home court. This is God's world. And because of that, we need to go and proclaim the victory that has been won over poverty, over abuse, over the victims of violence. We don't accept sin as the norm in our lives because God has freed us from the power of sin. We don't concede this ground to the devil because Jesus reigns now and our job is to go and declare to the world that Jesus is king and rules over all areas of life. To not just endure this life until it is over, but to proclaim the victory that has already been won. An idolatrous view we are attempted to believe is that our world is not God's, that the devil is in control, that this is his home court. But the victory of Christ and the ascension is a reminder that no, God reigns. Christ is king and we proclaim his victory. A second disadvantage that was faced on Mount Carmel is the disadvantage of numbers. Again, Elijah knows this, and he highlights this in verse 22. He says, I, even I only, am left of the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, we recognized last week that there was 100 prophets that had been spared. Those prophets exist, but they were not willing, like Elijah, to go public in ministry for fear of their very lives. And we also recognized that in earlier in the text, not only was it the 450 prophets of Baal, but it was also the 400 prophets of the Asherah. 
So we have one person against up to 850 others. They had more people. They could make a lot more noise. They had more time. And they sought to take advantage of that. They wailed and shouted and danced and even cut themselves for hours trying to get the attention of Baal. But all of that activity produced nothing. No one heard because no one was listening. And then the one prophet Elijah said a simple prayer captured in verses 36 and 37. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He identifies the one true God as he had been revealed. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. His prayer is not Elijah's protection. It's not about getting attention for himself. It is about proving the truth of God and his claim on the people that are watching. And despite those numbers in response, God replies. And fire comes down from heaven, destroying not only the offering, but the entire altar itself. And again, in looking at that supposed disadvantage in the numbers, I think it exposes two things and two traps that we can fall into. Uh, the first one is the numbers game. Many Christians in our society can start to look around and say, we're losing the political battle. The number of Christians and their presence in society is diminishing. And so we start to worry and become anxious about the fact that, you know, we're no longer having the same voice that we once had in society. And therefore, God's actions, his work is going to be stymied and, and stopped. And yes, in some small ways, that may be true from time to time. All kinds of governments have raised up to try to shut down the church and prevent it from growing. But the reality is that none of them have ever succeeded. And that despite any kind of imbalance in number, God over and over again have proven, has proven the fact that it is not about numbers. It's not about politics. It's about truth. That despite the imbalance, God always was in control. But secondly, I think there's the supposed disadvantage in this. It also reveals another tendency toward idolatry, which is the thought of manipulating the divine. With all of their numbers, the shouting and the dancing, the Baal worships assumed that they were going to try to, to get Baal to work. That through all of this activity, they were going to force Baal to respond to them. And so they shouted louder and danced harder and did more to gain his attention. And oftentimes, an idolatrous view of God is that we can control him or manipulate him through our behavior. How often has it happened when in a time of need, you approach God in prayer and you start to negotiate with him? God, if you heal, if you answer, if you guide, direct, then I promise that I'm going to fill in the blank, give more, attend more faithfully, do more. So let's work this agreement out, God. If I do this, will you do this? 
thinking that we can control God. But the true God cannot be controlled. The true God cannot be manipulated. He will have his will be done in all things. And so even though there were more numbers and they were much louder, the true God was revealed in the simple prayer of one faithful servant. Despite the imbalance in society and in the presence of Mount Carmel, God responded to the humble prayer of one person, and numbers made no difference whatsoever. Truth made the difference. Now, in all of that, there's a home court advantage, disadvantage, or, or the numbers disadvantage. There are some other kind of cleanup things that I wanted to, to highlight as well. First of all, there was other disadvantages that are a little bit more minor, but were definitely there. It was the fact that uh, Baal was the prominent god of the day. He was the newer kid on the block in Israel, and, and the, the Yahweh was seen as a, you know, that was something from the past. Days of, the, of, of history, the, the altar had to be rebuilt because it had fallen into disrepair. That was for those people back then. After rebuilding the altar, Elijah gave the additional disadvantage of pouring water all over it three times. But God answered and acted in a mighty way, sending fire and eating everything up. And it was a sign that he was the true God and he accepted the offering of Elijah, which again highlights a few things. First of all, it highlights the truth that God often reveals his greatest power and glory in our own weaknesses. When we feel incapable and we know that we are, when we come up against where we cannot control things or through our own strength handle things on our own, that is often when God shines the brightest. It's a truth that Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 12 when he spoke of a thorn that he had experienced in his own flesh and then confessed that through that he heard God saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Yes, in a broken world, the church often faces many disadvantages. But in those disadvantages, that's when God shows up and shines the greatest. And where he clearly receives the glory rather than us, those who are just trying to serve him. Another a couple of other notes. There's a disturbing comment at the very end of the text that we just read, where in response to the loss on Mount Carmel, Elijah goes and demands and calls for the killing of the 450 prophets of Baal. We wonder, well, why would God do that? And it's important to point out that this is not Elijah getting his own personal vengeance against these. These people who had worshipped the Baal God were, as described in God's word earlier, recipients of capital punishment before, because of that. And so this was God acting in justice. And again, it reveals an idol image we often want to have. Well, if God is this loving, all-kind person, then there should be no justice. There should be no judgment, no condemnation. But God has made it very clear that though he is love, he is also just 
in his love. And he has made clear that he is a jealous God that wants all of the attention of his creatures. And he has told us clearly that there is no life for those who pursue false idols and false images of who he is. So in love, he calls them to true, true understanding of him. And he doesn't ignore the sins of those that reject that truth or live apart from it. Another question that is often asked in light of this kind of a text is, well, why doesn't God just do this kind of thing today? If it is such a powerful demonstration of his presence and his might, why doesn't God just get the video cameras and up on the Temple Mount in Israel or in the, in the middle of Washington, D.C., he just reveal himself in an undeniable, incredible way, just like he did at Mount Carmel? Wouldn't that answer all of the problems, the struggles that we have and force people to tr acknowledge the truth of God just like it did to these Israelites? Well, here's a couple of answers to that. First of all, while the response of the Israelites was the Lord, he is God, an acknowledgement of his truth. The reality is that not all hearts ended up turning toward him. That even some of the very people who witnessed this continued in their idolatry. And it wasn't very long until the whole nation once again had wandered away from worshiping the true God. The reality is that oftentimes our hearts are so hard that even great and incredible demonstrations of God's power and might and presence in our lives can get ignored and dismissed or quickly forgotten. The second word is we forget that God did do it. The reality is in asking for God to do this again, we're saying that that wasn't good enough back then. We need to see it ourselves. But let's not forget that Mount Carmel is here told to us to affirm our faith today. And when we see the resurrection of Jesus, another great demonstration of the power of God, it happened. And so we cling to those truths. We hear about their revelation in the word and we say, God has done it. And that should be enough. Faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And hard hearts will not be convicted unless faith is granted them by that Holy Spirit. And then let me address one final thing. To make sure that in this demonstration and even in the act of God's justice against this people, that you don't miss the grace in this text. Again, the call was for the people of Israel to recognize the God that hadn't given up on them, even though they had given up on him. The worship of the Lord had fallen into, into they hadn't been practicing it. The temple wasn't used. The altars had fallen into disarray and needed to be rebuilt. And yet, as much as the people had wandered from God and ignored him and had turned their hearts to these fake idols, God still said, there's a path back to me. And in his grace, he sent his servant Elijah and Elijah rebuilt the altar, claiming the truth of the unity of all 12 tribes of Israel, even though they had been divided. 
and he offered a sacrifice, a sacrifice that was received by God in his grace, and it revealed his power. And you can't read that without thinking of Christ. How Christ was utterly alone. How Christ had every disadvantage against him. The religious leaders and the political leaders opposing everything that he did. And yet he was always obedient to the will of God. And he went to the cross where his sacrifice was accepted demonstrated in his resurrection from the grave and ascension back to glory. And in that, we see the path back to God. That though we have lived in rebellion to him, have not worshipped him in truth and in spirit as we ought, but have rejected him, he says, I will still pursue you, and there's a path back to me through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so whenever you're willing to rebuild your relationship Whenever you're able to come back to him, I am here, ready to receive you in love. That's a great testimony of truth. What was at stake? Elijah's question, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Mount Carmel was one of those places in history and in scripture where God demonstrated his absolute power, presence, and authority despite the disadvantages that were presented with him. It proves that he is the one true God. That and many, many other stories since that is true. It only gives us one option in terms of response. That we submit ourselves to that one true king. That we follow him in everything that he says. That we put to death all other idols, all other distractions, all other things that claim our heart and our worship and our devotion. And we worship and serve only him in everything that we do. Why? Because he alone is the king. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we have to start with our own confession. Our confession that oftentimes in our minds we have created idols that we like. In some ways better than you. We have made idols of our own desires. We have made idols of this world. We have surrendered in defeat in areas where we should have claimed victory. Lord, use us as small and few as we may feel, in order to do your work. Reveal yourself to us over and over again through answered prayer and show yourself powerful in our weakness, not so that we might receive glory, honor, and praise, but that you alone might receive that praise. But most importantly, we thank you that despite our rebellion, despite our failures, that you have promised us the way back to you through Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in the hearts of each one of us to recognize the powerful, almighty God that you are. And as we recognize you as the only holy God, that we would live for you 
in service to you, forsaking all other idols. This we pray in the name of the ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.